This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. This week, we've got a mailbag episode for everybody. We've got, we got tons of feedback about our Hogwarts house discussions. So glad to see that. Clearly, they resonated with everybody. So we'll get to all that email in a little bit. We also have some voicemails. And I have some major personal news. Make sure you're sitting down for this or maybe oh. sitting on something else. But before we get started, do check out our Patreon for two new bonus MuggleCast installments. In the first, out now, we looked at the movies and TV shows HBO Max is recommending each Hogwarts house watch on their platform. And later this week, we'll have another new bonus MuggleCast out in which we discuss the deleted scenes from Sorcerer's Stone to celebrate 20 years since that movie was released. There are a ton of deleted scenes. We're not just talking about the ones that were on the DVDs way back in the day. We're also talking about ones that uh, leaked through the scripts, which are now out, and through behind-the-scenes clips. So that's coming up on our Patreon today, patreon.com slash MuggleCast. So what is my personal news? Panel, as you three may recall, I don't know when this inside joke started exactly, but we came to discover that Mattel, the toy company here in the U.S., released a vibrating Harry Potter broomstick back in 2001. And the reason this story was interesting was because once parents started receiving this vibrating Harry Potter broomstick, they realized that's not the best thing for a child to play on. And I'll just leave it there. And if you look at some Amazon reviews, and of course, this product is no longer on Amazon. Again, this was out 20 years ago. People were leaving reviews like, leave the batteries out. (laughs) And my child plays on it for hours. (laughs) That's a fail. So as the story goes, they quickly stopped making this product because they realized it may be a bit of a problem. So it's been difficult to find. And... Over the past couple of years, I've joked that I would love to have one of these vibrating broomsticks just for fun because, you know, what a quirky Harry Potter product, a canceled Harry Potter product. That sounds fun. And so I set up an alert on my eBay account to inform me uh, when somebody listed one of these. And I've seen some from time to time, but some were missing the box. Some of the brooms were they were very um, just messy. Used. <laughs> used. <laughs> but finally, finally. I found one on eBay. I'm holding it here right now. This puppy cost me $100. I was the only person to bid on it. (laughs) Nobody else wanted this. And I am so happy to finally have received this. By the way, we posted about this on our social media channels. Jewel, our social media manager, tells us we've never received more engagement on an Instagram story. (laughs) Everybody was... Was it so your excited. was it like your what's in a box what's in the box packet like, yes. post yeah okay it was all wrapped up very well wrapped by the way great job seller uh but anyway it does vibrate and it makes swishing sounds and I'm just very pleased on the side of the box it says not an actual flying broom don't buy this thinking that it flies I guess dreams really do come true isn't that right Andrew that's right Eric so lest anyone think their dreams can't come true. You can fly one day like I have with this I did a search and the vibrating broomstick got mentioned on episode 301, which was late September 2016. So it's been running for at least five years now, this joke of the vibrating broom and you wanting one. Literally the first bullet point in episode 301 is Andrew's elusive quest for the vibrating (laughs) broomstick continues. I need to listen to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who knows? Who knows what we said or what, what we said? But over five years, that's super impressive. Hey, from your review video, does it only vibrate when it's making 
the sounds. Yes, that is my one complaint. It's not a consistent vibration. It only vibrates for like five seconds. I so wish it was like a steady vibration. Yeah, because otherwise it makes noise all the time. You have to kind of shut it up. <laughs> right. Yeah. Is this it? Have you peaked? I mean, is this? I've peaked. This yeah, is the moment. There's nothing else for me to buy. Wow. Yeah, this is it. I'm. Yep. I'm done. What's I'm it done. like to have achieved your life's purpose at the young age of 32? <laughs> well, I'm retiring soon. I'm going to fly off into the sunset with my broom. Now, <laughs> are, are you planning <laughs> to ride the broom wearing your Hogwarts conductor shirt that we got you? I will say I have not actually flown on the broom yet. I have not <laughs> sat on it and turned on the vibrating and sound effects function. And I did post a video on our Patreon in which I review the broom as well. And I didn't sit sit on it. I told patrons, look, this isn't OnlyFans. I'm not going to be doing that for you. So that's the vibrating broom. I just wanted to share it with everybody because I was so excited. There is another one on eBay currently, $185 for that one. Ooh. Yeah. Yo. I think it retailed for 20 back in the what, day. What does it say about us, though, with all the holidays and birthdays that have passed, that it took you five Thank years you, to get this and you bought it yourself? Thank you, Micah. I think that's a great point. I was waiting for you guys to buy this for me as a gift. Well, you never did. I mean, look, we get you this Hogwarts conductor shirt and you've yet to wear it. So your track record is not very good. The plant, yeah, the plant the daddy shirt. You bought that like two months ago. I've been asking for the broom for five years. Well, Andrew, <laughs> in all fairness, there are some gifts that are just better to be self-gifted. Yes. And I think this is one fair. of them. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Well, let's move on to some voicemails. Our mailbag got pretty big over the course of the last um probably month plus. And uh, we got a lot of great feedback. By the way, before we play it, sorry, quick broom update. Uh, Justin, Already? one of our listeners who's li- <laughs> who's listening live on our Patreon right now, he found references to the vibrating broom back in episode 114. <laughs> so wow. this goes far back. And this was September 2007. So we're talking like 15 years now. That's crazy. All right. So here's the first voicemail. Hey guys, um, I just want to start by saying I'm Danish, so please don't um, blaster me too hard for like, too much for like mispronouncing or not using the right words and stuff. It's not my native language, okay? But I just want to say that I heard your podcast about how the Slytherin students fled and I have this horrible, horrible feeling that they fled because of something called collected guilt, where they're basically like, it's like the Germans back in World War II, where they were like, even the Germans who didn't do anything were still kind of guilty anyway, because they were like, because the Germans, I think it's the same thing with the kids in the like the Slytherin group, because they were like, they're like, because the Slytherin, they're still kind of guilty. So they fled from the battle scene because they were afraid of getting caught and punished simply because they're Slytherin students, because every adult thinks Slytherin is bad. That's messed up, bro. But they got better. So, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate the abrupt end to that voicemail. Yeah. First of all, I want to say your English is great. Yeah, 100%. Don't be don't be so self-critical. Trust me, yeah. you're awesome. Also, I think that this is a really good take. I mean, think about probably a, a good chunk of these kids were sorted into Slytherin. Maybe their families held some of these reprehensible ideologies but they were kids they didn't know anything different and i could certainly see a child having this glass breaking moment of oh crap was my side wrong like are we the bad guys i guess i should leave nobody wants me here probably yeah yeah I can see that. It's too bad, you know, as the Slytherin, I have to say, it is too bad that they didn't stick around and, and prove everybody wrong. There's definitely something to be said for for guilt by association. And I think that that's probably another thing that was running through the minds of some of the Slytherins is, you know, I'm, I'm also kind of damned if I do, damned if I don't. You know, if I fight on the side of Slytherin and Voldemort and they lose, what happens? But if I don't, what happens. And so I, I kind of imagine it was tough for them mentally to to make that decision. 
For some yeah, of them, I not all think, of them. Yeah, I tend to think of it also as, you know, self-preservation is a good thing for people to have, um, depending on what their assessment is. You know, we would see it as them not being loyal to Hogwarts. But I think, you know, one of the house traits of Slytherin kind of has to do with ambition and protecting yourself. And this is a war. <laughs> so. Next voicemail. Hello, Mugglecasters. Juliana here. I really loved your discussion about the, you're here now, what if classes that Hogwarts could potentially offer within your Ravenclaw episode. And I was wondering what you all thought that the other classes would be for the Gryffindors, the Hufflepuffs, and the Slytherins, respectively. Me, personally, as a Hufflepuff, I was thinking the class could possibly be called How to Be the Emotional Chamber Pot for the Entire School and Not Crush Beneath the Pressure. Love what you guys are doing and keep up the great work. Thanks. Perfect. Perfect, Juliana. I think I mentioned that. I was kind of talking about having that exact class for all four houses like okay you're in gryffindor mm. now here's what to do with these traits yeah i i would say there would probably be for the hufflepuff uh class uh cooking element so i would want to learn to like make a really nice pizza um <laughs> wait like i want to join hufflepuff now these are I skills learn i know nice it's, pizza. learn to cook yeah andrew you wouldn't want a horcrux making class you talk about wanting to make those horcrux quite making often on the class yeah, I have once or twice. I mean, it'd be interesting to know, just in case. Just like one backup Horcrux, just in case I accidentally like fall off a bridge or something like that. So you get one do-over? One do-over. Just one, though. Just yeah. one. I just get in greedy. case you fall off a bridge trying to fly on that vibrating broomstick. <laughs> Laura, I was going to oh. say... Maybe he makes the broomstick the Horcrux. (gasps) You discovered the reason I bought this for $100 (laughs) off eBay. And then somebody has to destroy the broomstick to kill Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's get out of this. Hi, MuggleCast. This is Monet calling from Toronto. The voicemail message was very funny. I was just listening to episode 522 about revisiting Deathly Hallows, and Laura said something about how you didn't like the Elder Wand being snapped at the end of the movie. I actually really liked that because I think it fixes a plot hole in the book. So in the book, obviously, Harry just puts the Elder Wand back in Dumbledore's coffin, and he says, you know, if I die undefeated... The Elder Wand will never go to anyone. But he becomes an Auror, and he's also Harry Potter. And we learn throughout the book that you can be defeated or take mastery of the Elder Wand as simple as just expelliarmusing someone or wrenching the wand out of their hands. So there is no way that Harry would die undefeated. <laughs> and so someone else would get possession of the Elder Wand, and if they knew where it was, they would break into the coffin and steal it again. So I think that this ending in the movie I actually really like because the fact that Harry just puts it back and anyone can go and get it and become like the possessor of it, even with just expelliarmusing him, it really stresses me out. So I think that this overcame a plot hole, and I'm really here for it. I think it was a good change, and I kind of wish that it was what had happened in the book after all. Thank you so much. I love listening every week, and yeah, awesome. Ooh, that I, is a good I point. Hope I just have to hang up so this doesn't. Laura, Laura, you were you were quick to to praise the voicemail. She wasn't done yet. <laughs> I, lo- I like that ending. <laughs> that yes. Great. Um, yeah, I think that's actually a good point. Kind of reminds me of the whole issue with time turners being a bit of a plot hole that later came back to give us more content. So maybe that's what the author was thinking, oh. like leaving that door a little bit open. Oh. What if somebody dun, dun. defeated Harry and claimed the Elder Wand? And then we have a whole other series of books or movies or TV show or whatever. So maybe Harry snaps the Elder Wand in the movie so that it could not be a plot point in Cursed Child years later. <laughs> I am you not coming back. A... Snap. <laughs> it was Dan Radcliffe. He was like, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> he broke all those wands on set on purpose so that they could not <laughs> do <laughs> those looks on um on Rupert and Emma's faces of shock when he broke the wand. It's because that was unscripted. Yeah, genuinely. Wait. 
I didn't read that. Wait, Dan, wait. <laughs> cut, cut, cut. What just happened? Oh, it's too late. We're over budget. Love <laughs> it. is dead. And by the way, for anybody recording a voicemail, yes, you can just hang up. You don't have to do anything else. <laughs> Next voicemail. Hey, I'm listening to the episode with um, where you're talking about just Tina and all that stuff. And you're talking about Tina and Newt's wedding. And you're talking about like who's going to carry the ring. How come y'all didn't say pick it? Like, Pickett is the thing, right? He's always in his pocket and like Pickett's I'd say the man, but you know, the stick or whatever. So <laughs> the quote chuckle. Pickett's the stick. Oh. Yeah. That that'd be a great one. I mean, Pickett could wear the ring on his head or like use it as a hula hoop, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great idea. I think um much better than the Niffler, who would honestly yeah. take the ring and run out of the ceremony. Or Pickett runs after the Niffler, grabs it, and then Pickett is think the ring. Pickett could chase down the Niffler? Uh probably not. <laughs> Niffler does seem faster. Yeah. Uh before we get to the next voicemail, I wanted to do just a little introduction here because it's actually from one of our listeners' children. Um, and it's from Jen who wrote into us to say, I've tried many times to write this mail, but my words never seem good enough to convey my endless gratitude to you all. I found your podcast Aww. right at the start of COVID. And to say that you pulled me through the endless lockdowns is an understatement. Locked up working from home with two smallies with nowhere to go was seriously kicking my ass. <laughs> but my time out running listening to my new Harry Potter besties kept me sane. I have never had anybody to talk Potter with until I quote unquote met you guys. So thank you all from the bottom of my heart. I recently started reading the books to my little boy and it's safe to say he's obsessed. He has even started getting me to play the podcast for him too. Aww. He was especially delighted with the Hufflepuff episode as he got sorted into Hufflepuff. He even wants to be Newt when he grows up he left you a little voice note. Keep up the good work. You are the light in so many of our lives. That's so oh. sweet. Thank you, Jen. Really appreciate that. We're glad we helped. That was very heartfelt. Yeah, get through COVID even still. And this may be the best voicemail we've ever played on the show. Oh, okay. Hi, Casters. My name's Finn. And I'm sick. And, my, and I'm a hopeful puff. And... I'm on the Chamber of Secrets, and I love Harry Potter. Nice job, Finn. Love it. That's great. Chamber of Secrets. So much more to enjoy. Yeah. Jealous. Oh, man. My. Finn, I have to say this. Your mom wrote us a really nice, heartfelt email talking about how much the show has meant to y'all during the last couple of years and i just have to say voicemails like yours mean a lot to me and, and to all of us now stuff like that is what helps us get through <laughs> so Definitely. thank you yeah I'm so happy to meet a fellow hufflepuff that's really <laughs> really neat uh, don't forget pizza class we're gonna learn how to make some happy pizza some tasty pizzas uh later today all right well we have lots of emails to get to today but first, this week's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Taking care of your mental health is one of the most important things you can do for yourself. And if you think there's something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals, check out BetterHelp. They will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist who you can work with via voice, video, or text chat. BetterHelp lets you easily and quickly get started with therapy right from wherever you are right now. Within 48 hours, you can start speaking with a therapist and the services available for clients worldwide. Whether you're at home, at work, on the go, on your broom, in the pizza shop, in the park, in the bookstore, you can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online. 
You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with your therapist. I am a big fan of the text chat feature because it's easy to fit in with my workday, and it couldn't be easier to send a message. I do live text sessions with my counselor in which we're actually typing back and forth in real time, and we can see what each other is typing. It really helps speed up the conversation in a text chat format. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. I want you to try BetterHelp, and we have a special offer for MuggleCast listeners. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash MuggleCast. Again, get 10% off at B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash MuggleCast today. Okay, let's move into the emails. All right, we've got a first one in reference to our Ravenclaw discussion. It says, I started listening to you this year, and I've really been enjoying it so far. I've recently started submitting to Quizitch too, and it's loads of fun hearing you read my wacky name along with the others. Thanks so much for making such an enjoyable Harry Potter podcast. I was discussing your last episode about the Ravenclaw house with my sister. I'm slowly getting her into the show. And a thought struck me. Did J.K. Rowling subtly rank the houses based on their colors? Looking at the metals of the house colors, or non-metal in regards to Hufflepuff, and ranking them like prize medals, it certainly seems so. Gryffindor, being red and gold, would come first. Slytherin would come in second place with green and silver. Ravenclaw would be third with blue and bronze. And poor Hufflepuff would come last without a medal, (laughs) just yellow and black. I wanted to know what all of your thoughts were on this. Thanks. Signed, a slightly disgruntled Ravenclaw listener. Great observation. Poor Hufflepuff. They don't get anything. (laughs) I will say, though, when I was growing up, when I was Finn's age, I used to hear this phrase, first is the worst, second is the best, third is the one with the hairy chest. So Ravenclaw, second in your analysis here, maybe you are the best. I cannot explain how crazy it is in my head that you said that because I was thinking of that chant like when this email was being Really? (laughs) Yeah, we grew up with that. I mean, we both grew up on the eastern seaboard, so... I'm sure right, true. And also, yeah. I got this wrong. I was thinking Ravenclaw was second. It's not. It's, it's Slytherin. So, sorry, you have the hairy chest, and I'm the best. <laughs> you know, I, <gasps> is there even a participation medal here? No. Like, I feel like... Well, maybe for Hufflepuff, <sighs> is that what you're asking? Yeah, that's what I'm asking. Oh. You get a pizza. But, but Andrew, isn't second place just the first loser? <laughs> <laughs> Look. Not to rain on your parade. I'm not beat up. I'm not the disgruntled Ravenclaw, but this is this is a very cool observation, and you're probably right. Yeah, I, I mean, who knows what swirls around inside of J.K. Rowling's head, but certainly there's something to be said for metals and alchemy and other things that we've talked about in the series. So it's a great observation by um, NSY. Isn't yeah. not sure what that stands for. Well, and also there are just cultural implications to the ranking of gold, silver, bronze, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to say copper turns black when it's oxidized. So maybe... What's after bronze? Eric, you have pizza. Just love the pizza, okay? (laughs) Hufflepuffs are copper. Honestly, pizza's better. Pizza's way better. I'd rather have pizza. Pizza party. Yeah, like if I won an Olympic gold medal and they handed me a gold, I'd be like, that's cool, but where's the pizza party? Okay. Pizza party, Hufflepuff Common Room, everybody. All right. Next email is from Annette. Hi, guys. I have really enjoyed your house discussion so far, and it struck me how interesting it is that we all see our houses so differently based on our preferences and placement on the introvert extrovert scale. Eric mentioned during the Hufflepuff episode and again early in the Ravenclaw one that you see Hufflepuff as the most social one and with the best parties. As an introvert, I have always imagined Hufflepuff's common room as the introvert's paradise, a quiet, cozy little hobbit hole with snacks, hot drinks, books, a fire going on in the hearth, warm blankets, and plants everywhere. Laura mentioned that she sees Ravenclaw as a very introverted house with many bookish people focused on their studies, and I would agree. But I'm sure if you asked an extroverted Ravenclaw, they will tell you their common room is filled with people having loud, deep, and fervent discussions on philosophy, science, magic, art, and literature. 
I imagine 50s poets and writers with horn-rimmed glasses and jazz in the background. All in all, I love how we all find what we need in our houses, and thanks for doing deep dives into each one. I really enjoy it. Yeah. That's a good point. I feel like if I were in this, um, and I love the idea of a 1950s Ravenclaw aesthetic, like a jazz club, I would go, but I would be one of the people who was on the outer rim of the social circle. Like, I don't want to be up in it in the heat of a conversation. I want to be in like a cozy chair off to the side, listening and observing. Mm. Where would you be, Micah? I really like the way that they position it as depending on the personality type that you are, that's kind of how you would envision the common room. And obviously I am not extroverted by any sense. I'm an introvert. So I would probably see it along the lines of just like people quietly like reading books and by like lots of candlelight and and like cool scrolls hanging from the ceiling or I don't know, like I'm I'm doing this on a whim here, but, uh, <laughs> you know, if they were a little older, perhaps they have some fire whiskey as they're going through and, and reading and very comfortable though, too. I think there are aspects of every house that would make the common room a home. Common rooms are supposed to be homes. So to that point, mm-hmm. I think the Hufflepuff common room would be a home, a refuge where you could go if you were not looking to socialize. Hmm. Yeah. I guess Gryffindor might be a little more extroverted in there. Yeah, isn't there always parties that like last throughout the night? There's always like- Well, there's always so much to celebrate when you're a Gryffindor. (laughs) Because when you're the heroes. Yeah, good point. (laughs) Of course, you and your gold. (laughs) But- um, X gold. I left gold for silver. (laughs) I can also see like Ravenclaw and, and Laura, feel free to jump in here. Like I can see a lot of games being played, like mind games academic type of games like competition um maybe i mean chess is an easy one but we know that harry and ron play settlers of Catan, man i could see us doing that (laughs) Mm -hmm. i'll be in whatever house plays nintendo it's hufflepuff it's gotta be hufflepuff Hufflepuff. yeah nintendo and pizza what a dream yeah i mean sounding better and better there's smiley faces on all the clouds it's hufflepuff (laughs) Uh, okay, well, uh, here is some further Hufflepuff discussion from Kristoff. I'm a fairly new listener to your podcast, just recently rediscovered my love of Harry Potter, and I really enjoyed your recent discussion and defense of Hufflepuff House. It really reminded me of my rocky relationship with Hufflepuff. For a long time, I felt like I was pure Ravenclaw, but in the last few years, I've discovered that I am also a bit of a puff. And it's this weird thing where I have this internalized feeling of thinking that somehow I'm too cool to be a Hufflepuff. But on the other hand, I feel like I'm not good enough for Hufflepuff. Like I don't really live up to the ideals of hard work and loyalty and tolerance. So I paradoxically often think that I'm both too good and not good enough for Hufflepuff. And I think there might be other people out there with this sort of feeling. Uh, Love from Luxembourg. Yeah, Christoph, I I get that. I think that it's more of the um more of an average of how you feel and it's all about what you value. So I've definitely felt uh, an ebb and a flow myself. This also sounds a bit like imposter syndrome and yes. I know we all feel this from time to time. So Christoph, I would say embrace the characteristics of Hufflepuff that make you happy. Embrace the characteristics of Ravenclaw that make you happy. Just call yourself a Ravenpuff. There you go. There you go. You get a slice of pizza. (laughs) Just half a slice, though. (laughs) Just half. Wow. Our next email comes from Ivan or Ivan. I'll throw both out there and hope one is correct. Uh, He says, hello, people. I hope you're doing great. I feel compelled to tell you why I think there should be a, quote, defensive Ravenclaw too. And Andrew, I actually thought about this. And the way that I had first read this email was that he was saying that because we did a defense of Hufflepuff and a defense of Slytherin, he that he also felt we should do a defense of Ravenclaw, not necessarily just like a straight up discussion on Ravenclaw, that Ravenclaw deserves to be defended as well. Okay. 
and he gives a number of reasons why. Unlike the other two, Ravenclaws don't get too much open criticism, yet they are mistreated in a different way. They are invisibilized and or neglected. Mm. Our colors, and even mascot, are misrepresented in most pieces of merchandise. (laughs) Try finding a Ravenclaw shirt without silver or even yellow. Hashtag bring back the bronze. There are stories with protagonists of every house, Harry and Gryffindor, Newton, Hufflepuff, and Scorpius and Albus and Slytherin. The closest we get is the founding of Ilvermorny, and Esalt wanted to be a Ravenclaw, although she obviously didn't become one. There is no representation, besides Luna, of Ravenclaws actually living up to the house's qualities. Quite the contrary. The most academic house has some of the most incompetent teachers, Lockhart, Trelawney, Quirrell, and not a single character that you consider smart or academically inclined in the series is a Ravenclaw. Dumbledore, Lily, Snape, Hermione, McGonagall, Newt, Percy, the list goes on. Most Ravenclaws are portrayed in a negative or neutral to negative light like Cho, Marietta, Lockhart, or Trelawney, and some less obvious cases, Roger Davies and Michael Corner. Because we're not maligned nor mocked, there wasn't any turnaround, any compensation by the author later, but at the same time, we don't get almost any positive attention besides Luna, who is bullied, and it's implied it is her roommates, so that's not that big of a positive. We are the best house, no bias, but it's like we are barely even there. Aw, we see you. Laura? We see you. <laughs> I just, I'm trying to collect myself right now because this whole email just spoke to my soul. Wow. <laughs> it really, it does feel like in a lot of ways, Ravenclaw representation, I mean, it doesn't really count as representation. We're just sort of there. We're like, we're filler characters Aww. in a lot of senses. Isn't that how Ravenclaws would prefer it? I mean, I guess I'm still kind of harping on Ravenclaws as more introverts, um, despite our previous email that we got. But, um, you know, I, I think that Professor Flitwick certainly wouldn't neglect his house. And Professor Flitwick is a great example of somebody who's immensely smart and talented. Um, the plot, I would agree, does not call specific attention to him. But, uh, you know, for his skill, but at the same time, there's at least one good, great Ravenclaw, just like in the books, there was Cedric Diggory for Hufflepuff. Yeah, but how much time do we really get with Flitwick? About as much as we got with Cedric Diggory, I'd like to think. Yeah, Cedric felt maybe more relatable because we're reading him through Harry's lens and they're both teenagers, Mm. right? You're so right. Harry obviously relates to Cedric in a way that he's not going to relate to Flitwick. So yeah, I agree. I, I think there is still something to be desired in terms of how Ravenclaws are portrayed in this universe. I'm still waiting. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hopeful. Yeah, I really like that point about it being the house we knew the least about. I really like that point that was made on the Ravenclaw episode. Agree. All right. Our next email comes from Amanda for some house perspective. Amanda says, hi, I'm a relatively new muggle caster, but I've thoroughly enjoyed listening. One thing I've heard y'all say in multiple episodes, especially in the defense of Slytherin and Hufflepuff episodes, is something along the lines of how J.K. Rowling course corrected and softened the perception of various things, especially those houses as she got into later books. I would just like to offer a little child psychology to the conversation because while it may be true that JK course corrected, it's one of the things I find so brilliant about the books. The first book is written from an 11-year-old boy's perspective, a boy who is suddenly thrust into an entirely new world pretty much on his own. He knows nothing about the houses at Hogwarts except what Hagrid tells him. In the first book, to Harry... Hagrid is the hero he knows. Dumbledore is the hero he hears about. He swoops in and rescues him from the Dursleys, tells him the truth about how his parents died, and introduces him to the life his parents wanted him to have. 
So when Hagrid tells him that Slytherin is all bad and Hufflepuff is a bunch of duffers, he simply believes his hero. And his encounter with Malfoy doesn't help matters. Add to this the fact that children see the world as black and white, you're bad or you're good, and Harry's idea of what the people in those houses looks like are set. It's not until they mature into the teens that they start to see the world in shades of gray. A person could be good, but also make terrible decisions sometimes, like Dumbledore. There's a reason Harry gets so upset at him when he's a teen and not before. As the books went on, maybe it wasn't course correcting so much as it was Harry's understanding growing. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, really great observation. Okay, this next email is from Isabella concerning Hufflepuff integrity. Hi, I'm 26 and have been a Harry Potter fan for decades. Originally thought I was Gryffindor, but I am a Ravenclaw. I've started listening to your podcast since the pandemic started, and I binge while I'm at work. Well, welcome to the show, Isabella. I just finished your Defense of Hufflepuff episode, and I was surprised that the word integrity wasn't brought up when talking about what makes someone a Hufflepuff. I think there were a few phrases brought up to describe Hufflepuffs that could be considered integrity. Following their personal North Star is like having a strong moral compass and having the humility to admit when you're wrong when presented with new information. I think a strong example of Hufflepuff integrity is Helga declaring she'll take the rest and teach them all the same. She thinks of the long-term public gain of everyone having a proper education rather than just focusing on students who she perceives will exemplify her own personal goals in the wizarding world. Personally, I don't think she would have made it an option to separate and put in houses based on arbitrary personality traits at all. I think her choice was her being more enlightened than the other three founders, and her saying, I'll take the rest, isn't an indication that she thinks lesser of the students who don't fit into their criteria. (gasps) More so a response to other founders being exclusionary and providing everyone an opportunity. People who have a strong sense of integrity have a more secure and confident sense of who they are as a person. If you think of houses and their traits as such, bravery, ambition, intelligence, integrity, it rounds out the virtues well. Ah, Isabella, what a love letter to Helga. I love this. A, A Ravenclaw defense of Hufflepuff, nonetheless, Eric. That makes it even more special cross-fandom love. Our listeners are so observant and are adding so much to our discussions. Thank you for all this feedback. It really, really is awesome. Here is an email from Faith. Hi, MuggleCast. My name is Faith, one of your younger and Canadian listeners. I am writing to you after listening to one of your previous episodes in defense of Slytherin. For context, I'm a Gryffindor. Something I wondered after finishing it is what would have happened if Tom Riddle had been sorted into Slytherin's, quote, opposite house, Gryffindor. Would this have changed the outcome of the Wizarding Wars? If so, how drastically? Another thought I had was that the reason Voldemort's main supporters were Slytherin is because that's who he chose to surround himself with the most. If he had been sorted into and hung mostly around a different house, his influence would have mainly contained within that group of people. Thus, that's where most of the Death Eaters would have originated from. Thank you for being such a great podcast, perhaps even the best podcast ever. Your message of inclusion and acceptance is something the world needs to hear more often. You are people who lead by example and your hard work shines through. Thank you. Lastly, one defense you can say for Slytherin is that if we didn't have them, we would be left only with primary colors, red for Gryffindor, (laughs) yellow for Hufflepuff, and blue for Ravenclaw. And when you mix them up, you get a neutral color, which is boring. Adding green to the mix makes it much more exciting. So true. (laughs) Green's my favorite color, actually. (gasps) Laura, come to the dark side. Join (laughs) us. We're silver over here. (laughs) (laughs) So if Tom Riddle were a Gryffindor, would his Death Eaters be made up of mostly Gryffindors? No. No. Really? No. Well, I don't know. These are very different people in Gryffindor House. It doesn't follow then that all of these people would sign up for what Tom Riddle's selling. It's hard because Gryffindor, I feel like, are the most likely people to do something dangerous or rule breaking. We've talked about this, but I think that the reason that the Death Eaters were in Slytherin or hailing from Slytherin is because those people valued 
power and they saw a means by which to attain power for themselves by aligning themselves with the guy who was trying to run it all. Um, but Gryffindor's uh, an easier case to make because they are also very bold and warlike. So it's a hard, hard question for me. Here's what I will say. We've seen various examples in the books of Tom Riddle being incredibly persuasive and charming. And he charms people who are not necessarily Slytherins. So would the same amount of Gryffindors have sided with Tom Riddle as the amount of Slytherins you did? Maybe not. But I think that there could be a case to make that he could have at least had a core group of Gryffindor friends who were on his side. I mean, we have to consider uh, the bandwagoning effect here, right? We see it all the time in society. People get on board with things because they feel good, not necessarily because they're right. So who knows? Maybe. Yeah, it it makes me think about a lot of different things because part of the reason why I love this question is because it kind of flips the one that we would normally throw out there, which is what if Harry was in Slytherin? This asks what if Voldemort Mm. was in Gryffindor, but I'm just thinking through things like he obviously goes to Slughorn to learn about Horcruxes. And the difference there is at the time, isn't Slughorn his head of house? Right. I wonder if he would get that same kind of information from, I don't know if McGonagall was the head of house back then, but I, <laughs> or was it Dumbledore? I, I doubt it that, and, and even his followers to the points that were raised, I just think that Slytherins, there was this tendency for that house to have families that were a little bit too obsessed with pure blood mania and I just, we don't see as much of it in Gryffindor. I'm not saying that there weren't students or or families of students who followed that same kind of set of ideals, but it's just hard to imagine him being in Gryffindor. Yeah, I think we also have to remember the time this would have taken place. I mean, we don't see very many Gryffindors in Harry's time expressing a preference over blood status, but in the 1940s? Wouldn't that have been when Tom was at Hogwarts? I mean, Mm. it it could have been an entirely different world at that point. There could have been a lot more implicit bias going on. And um, to the point about Slughorn, we see that Slughorn doesn't necessarily place academic preference on Slytherins. I mean, he's very fond of Harry. He's very fond of anyone who he can collect, right? So I think Slughorn would have been impressed with Tom Riddle no matter what house he was in. Yeah, that that's a really good point. Our next email comes from Amelia, who is talking about the heads of house. She says, hi, MuggleCast. My name is Amelia. I live in Sydney, Australia. While it's listening to your episode about Slytherin House, it got me thinking about how the heads of House of Hogwarts are chosen. Throughout the series, we're given multiple examples of heads of house, and as far as I know, they're all heads of the house they were in at school. The main examples, McGonagall, Flitwick, Sprout, and Snape. In most cases, the teacher has to have experience of teaching before becoming a head of house, and then presumably get offered a position. If a teacher was very experienced and professional and a position appeared as a head of house, who said that the teacher only be offered the position if it were for their own house, or is it at the teacher's discretion? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks for all the work you do, Amelia. So so is she asking basically if, let's just say, Flitwick wanted to be head of Gryffindor house, he could be so even though he was a Ravenclaw when he went to Hogwarts. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a good question. I mean, I would wonder about just loyalty in general. Yeah. Again, I think you really have to have like lived it. You're at Hogwarts for seven years. Um, So I think it makes perfect sense for you to be kind of a subject matter expert on what makes that house tick. Um, based on your experiences, I think 
many people can be a good teacher um, without sort of that lived experience. I think you can become a good teacher, a good instructor if you're good at listening and you know generally care. But I think for the heads of house, it makes sense that these people were actually in their houses. And they probably know more secrets and more secret passages and where the good pizza is and all that stuff. <laughs> and don't you think the students will have a better relationship with the head of house if that person actually was in that house while they were at Hogwarts. I, th- <laughs> yeah. I think you need that understanding. That's a good point. I think it's a rapport thing for sure. But also, I mean, we've seen various examples over the years of the head of house appearing in the house common room, for example. So I guess it becomes a question of, is that a Hogwarts rule? Similar to like, the staircases to the girls' dormitories turn into a slide if boys try to go in. Like, if somebody, if an adult who was not in that house during their schooling years tries to get in, does something happen? There's a lot of good questions here, I think, in general about like what is the prerequisite for teaching at Hogwarts? I see somebody mentioned that in the Discord. Like, is it education at Hogwarts? No, no, no. It's a strategic importance to the story and uh, the defeat of Voldemort. It's strictly Dumbledore does not care if you even have ever taught before. I mean, you know, we've discussed time and time again how things are a little loosey-goosey around Hogwarts. So (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised if the rules to becoming a teacher weren't so strict. I'm sure Dumbledore trusts all these people to be good educators, but do they need like a traditional background in teaching or do they need a degree in education or anything like that? I doubt it. <laughs> I think Dumbledore <laughs> auditions them. I think a it's all way. about practical application, right? So yeah. is he sort of subjecting them to an examination during their interview process to make sure they know what the hell they're doing? Yeah. Maybe. Right. Because clearly like he's good at evaluating Voldemort being <laughs> on the back of well, I guess Coral was already there, so that's not yeah, but the Fair, thing about like, Quirrell is Mad-Eye. it was very noticeable when he came back from Albania because he only started wearing the turban when he had, you know, Voldemort on the back of his head. Right. And so it just strikes me as odd that nobody was ever like, hey, so what's the, what's that about? Mm. That would be culturally insensitive. Like, Gilderoy, can I <laughs> check your references? Mm. <laughs> That's the thing, though. It's, you know, that's a good real world example. It's like we put references on job applications and it's you got to wonder, are they actually checking the references? Maybe maybe he did put down job references, references, knowing that Dumbledore wouldn't actually check. Lucy Goosey. Lockhart's references were Ob, Liv and E8. But also, (laughs) I mean, with Lockhart, it seems like if you started digging into his resume, that you would find a disturbing pattern of people who have no memory of their accomplishments. And you would be like, that's weird. Then this is all the proof we need that Dumbledore doesn't go to, do a good job of selecting teachers. I mean, it all worked out for the most part. But he's famous. He wrote all those books. Surely he is prime teacher material. Right. Fake it till you make it. All right. Our next email comes from Rachel in reference to Fantastic Beast 3. Um, this is going to maybe be a little bit triggering for you, Andrew. Uh Uh-oh. It says, (laughs) I've been listening for about seven months now, and I've started going back and listening to the book five chapter-by-chapter discussions, and at the beginning of episode 434 in September 2019, pre-pandemic, or the before times, as they're known, (laughs) y'all discussed the third Fantastic Beasts movie, and Andrew says he's surprised the script is still being worked on, and he's so hoping the movie would be out by spring or summer of 2021. And why, oh, why did it need to be pushed back to November 2021? And he said how we should have gotten a title when they started filming at the beginning of 2021. It's just so crazy listening to the timeline pre-pandemic and, uh, and how it has actually turned out. We have neither the movie nor the title in September 2021, two years later. Love the pod. Thanks. <laughs> And allegedly, we're less than a year away from the release of the movie right now. So, yeah, 
that's one of the fun things about doing this show and making these predictions on air. We can revisit them and cry or laugh or celebrate, brag. In this case, it's a lot of crying. Yeah. Well, hopefully we get a title soon. <laughs> or a teaser trailer, to your point. You said we're, two years later. We're not that uh, far away. It's going to be surreal to to like actually get some information about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to feel real when we do. Well, actually, along those lines... Um, we have a couple of throwback emails, which we like to do go all the way back in our email archives. These are both from September the 28th, 2007. So 14 years ago, just a little shy of that. Uh, but yeah, along those lines, John 18 at the time wrote into us from New York and he asked the question, do you think Joe is going to make a series about Dumbledore before the Harry Potter books? <laughs> John. Damn, John Trelawney over here. Way ahead of his time. Yeah, September 2007. So this was right after book seven came out. Obviously, more of Dumbledore's backstory was built up in book seven. I think it was a great guess at the time. I wonder if we speculated that on, on air. Wouldn't this have also been after her reveal that Dumbledore is gay? September of 2007? That happened in October. Oh, okay. Oh, October. If John only knew what was still to come. <laughs> just, well, Dumbledore was always the character that was just absurdly older than everyone else. Like one of Rowling's first interviews said he was 150. So it makes sense. He was not apart from being the headmaster and hero and the best, you know, strongest wizard of the books. It just makes sense to if you're telling any kind of prequel story to have it revolve around Dumbledore, who's seen it all, mm -hmm. seen it all. And of course, one of the most popular characters. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then one other email we had here from uh, Shira B. 12 at the time from uh, Concord, New Hampshire, says, hi to all the awesome muggle casters, especially Jamie, because you have a hot accent. <laughs> true. It's true. He, it's so he true. He does. He does. 12-year-old Shira. <laughs> Jamie's so I have a question about one of Snape's memories. When he's talking to Dumbledore, when Hagrid overhears them, Snape sends out his Patronus. Why does Dumbledore say, after all this time? What does he mean by that? And yes, I do know that Snape's Patronus is the same as Lily's, but that still doesn't explain it. How did Harry know about Lily's Patronus? All good questions, and I've struggled with this myself. You kind of have to do mental gymnastics to say, Harry's Patronus is a stag. He was told that that's his father's animagus form. So presumably the person- so Snape is his sister? No, presumably the person that marries uh, the stag animagus is going to have a doe Patronus. And then from there, you got to say, well, Snape's Patronus is the same as Lily's. That's weird, right? There's no cleaner line that explains that, is there? I'm trying to do some Googling. Yeah, I was thinking yeah. even maybe some of the listeners in the in the Discord would be able to answer this. I agree with you about the mental gymnastics, Eric. I don't think it's ever explicitly stated that Lily's Patronus is a doe. I could be totally wrong about that. But it Yeah, you'll see you'll see listicles saying it, but I don't think that that's strictly in it because Harry only finds out about the doe in in the uh, at the end of Deathly Hallows. So there's not enough time for anyone to be like, by the way, that was your mother's Patronus or that way, if your mother well, was an animagus, that's and, what she And think about in Prisoner of Azkaban, how he reacts to seeing the stag. He's like, that's my father. And wouldn't you think that he would have a similar reaction to seeing the doe? Oh, right. For when Snape makes the dough appear the, and it guides him. This also was part of what in the movies made a lot of people think that's that weren't Harry Potter book readers. Snape was Harry's father. <laughs> right. Well, as far as after all this time, I think what Dumbledore is asking is, you know, because we know that based on book six and what happened with Tonks, that your Patronus takes a form that is irrevocably tied to your current emotional state. So for Snape to have a Patronus that is, uh, you know, reminiscent of Lily or exact to Lily's, 
after all this time, meaning when Harry's, you know, a teenager, 15, 16 years after Lily's death, uh, then that that's what Dumbledore is asking. You still love this person, this this like your love for this person still burns enough for that to be your Patronus form. And he says always. Right. I mean, does he need to know prior to this? Does Harry need to know? I don't think so. No, but I think the question that is being asked is how would Harry be able to recognize that as his mother's Patronus without any context? Right. Is that line just for the audience, basically? Oh, I see. He ha- Well, Harry does have the context of all of Snape's memories, so he's just finishing watching all of Snape's memories in the Pensieve, which is Snape's love letter to Harry's mother. That's a good point. So maybe he picks it up based on context clues. A plot hole. And I think, like was said, James's Patronus being a stag. So maybe the two are similar. At just Googling around, it doesn't seem like there's any like super clear answers on this. I guess I don't I don't love the sort of like similar species patronuses of Mary. It's very convenient. Yeah, because I mean, what, isn't Ron's a terrier and Hermione's is an otter? Like Yeah, but we already did an episode on the otter weasel comparison. Yeah. Uh just seems flimsy. Mm -hmm. I agree. But it's always been that way, right? I love the idea that this is an email sent in, uh, you know, 14 years ago, and we still don't have an answer. (laughs) No. (laughs) Shira. eh. We should start a series on our social, like, after we share some of these 15-year-old emails, like, put them up on Twitter and be like, fill in the gaps. Like, what do you guys think the answer is? We don't know. Yeah. I love that. That's, That's a great idea. Love it. Jot it down, Joel. We may not know the answer to this after all this time, but 14 years later, we do still know that Jamie's accent is hot. Always. Always. It always will be. I love how it's like, <laughs> you still don't know after all this time. Always. <laughs> and now now it's a, it's a hot dad accent. <laughs> oh, right. Yes. He has a, a daughter now. All right. Well, that's our Muggle Mail episode. Thank you to everybody who wrote in whether or not we read your email on air. We do read all the emails. We do listen to all the voicemails. We don't have time to get to them all, but we greatly enjoy reading all the feedback. It's so nice to hear back from our listeners after we record these episodes. If you have any feedback about today's discussion, maybe we will incorporate it in a future Muggle Mail episode. We definitely will read or listen to it. You can contact us by writing or sending a voice message to MuggleCast at gmail.com. For the latter, just record a message using the Voice Memo app on your phone. You can also use the MuggleCast contact form on MuggleCast.com, or you can leave a voicemail on our phone. The number is 1920-368-4453. That's 1-920-3-MUGGLE. And now it is time for Quizage. Last week's question, this sorting hat tells us that Hufflepuff came from Valley Broad, Slytherin from Fen, and Ravenclaw from Glen. But from where did Godric hail? The The answer I was looking for from the sorting hat song is Wild Moor. And the correct answer was submitted by, these are some of the best names we've ever received. (laughs) Kit Kat Every Flavor Bean, Gudrick Griffing, Norwegian for Godric Gryffindor, Muggle Wuggle Buggle Bear, Where in the World is Kevin Stechiego, That Cursed Opal Necklace, The Wild Witch of Yorkshire, That Girl Goyle Polyjuiced Into, and All of You Should Be in a Band with Andrew as the Lead Singer. <laughs> Isn't that what this is? Nobody would attend. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is the band. You're right. It's just we're all acapella. We're performing uh, weekly. Yes. All our songs are acapella. Also, Don't uh, let pathetic, it be July. Also, somebody... <laughs> Also, somebody named Pathetic, Plump, Pasty, Puny, Phony, Peter Pettigrew. Um, but yeah, some people pointed out that Wild Moor is actually Godric's Hollow. Oh. But I was not looking for Godric's Hollow because that's obvious. Godric Gryffindor comes from Godric's Hollow. Oh, come on. This isn't the $200 oh. question on Jeopardy. Well, uh, you're getting competitive there, Micah. Um, but yes. Uh, here's how's this for Ravenclaw erasure next week's question what form 
does Cho Chang's Patronus take? That's right, we're single-handedly combating the invisibility of... We're single-handedly combating Ravenclaws being made invisible. So, ah, Ravenclaw-themed question. I see. Thank you. Yes. Maybe the shortest Submit. question ever. Yeah, maybe... <laughs> maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Submit your answer to us over on the MuggleCast website, MuggleCast.com slash Quizich, and we look forward to all of your names. Make sure you're following the show for free in your favorite podcast app, and leave us a review if they allow you to. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media. Our username is MuggleCast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Again, we've got a new bonus MuggleCast coming up. We're about to record it in which we discuss all the deleted scenes from Sorcerer's Stone, even the ones we didn't see on the DVD. So we're going to dig into the details. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.